So did we. Father in heaven, we thank you that you collect souls. You go and find the lost and you retrieve them. And you celebrate over them. And all of heaven with you. And then there's a time, Lord, that these bodies run their limit. And you and your sovereign plan and your ordained days of these bodies, they quit and you take them souls home. The souls that you purchased with your own son's blood. We thank you for the Joe Gibsons and so many others from this body here that have gone on to be with the Lord. They're ahead of us, Lord. But we thank you for their lives and we thank you that they have been such an encouragement to so many. Lord, I pray we too, those of us that are left here, we would live lives, Lord, that are pleasing to you. Not because we have to, but because we get to. You've changed our lives and when we leave, it would be said of us that we were a great encouragement to everyone around us. Children would rise up and call us blessed because we loved your son, we loved his word, and we loved his people. I pray, Lord, that we would strive for those things. We wouldn't get caught up in the problems that often plague churches if we do those things. So, Lord, help us love you, love your word, love your son. We want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not for the pride or the praise of it, because our lives reflected you, brought you glory in some way. Help us in that, Lord. Father, we thank you for the Old Testament. As now we look into it, we know it is all pointing forward to a greater picture. Thank you that we can read it and understand it this way. And we enjoy it, Lord, when we understand that crystal-centric trend to the Scriptures, all pointing towards the fulfillment in Christ. Again, we ask that you would help us see this this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers chapter 17 is our passage. I thought maybe I would do 18, but it has been a very, very busy week. <laughs> and so I got 17 done. Uh, but it is a marvelous text. Let me read it for you, and then we'll talk about it, explain it, think about it, apply it, see Christ in it, all the things we enjoy doing here. Numbers chapter 17 reads this way, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and get from them a rod from each of the father's household, twelve rods from all the leaders according to their father's household, and you shall write each name on his rod. And write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet, will meet with you. And it will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumbling of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. Moses therefore spoke to the sons of Israel and all the leaders gave him a rod apiece and for each leader according to their father's household 12 rods with the rod of Aaron among their rods. So Moses depo deposited the rods before the Lord in the tent of, meat, tent of testimony. 
Now, on the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the household of Levi has sprouted and put forth bud and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Moses then brought out all of the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, put the rod of Aaron before the testimony to keep to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Thus Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, so he did. Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses saying, Behold, we perish, we are dying, we are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? Sunday, I was in John chapter 10. I was teaching on, of course, Luke 15, but referenced John chapter 10 as we looked at the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the door. There we reminded that the thief only comes to steal, right, and to kill and destroy, chapter 10, verse 10. In verse 1, the Bible told us that the thief tries to come in a different way. This is false teaching. This is, this is uh, uh, theology not found in the scriptures. Uh, ways to try to get to God some other way. The scriptures uses all kinds of things to illustrate that. As we drop into this text in Numbers chapter 17, here are... These groups of men, they have been purged in some way in the last chapter. God has shown his judgment. He has swallowed up some and fire has struck down others and amazing scenes. But all of these people wanted to come into presence the presence of God their way, not God's way. And every time someone tries to come to God their own way, outside of the way, the truth, and the life that God has provided, there is always judgment. And you may not see it on this earth, but you will see it judgment someday. It's very evident in 16 that it is a real picture of hell when somebody comes to God other than his way. They were swallowed up alive, the Bible says. And so here we find another passage. And you, when you first read this, you go, oh, God's just showing that Aaron is the high priest. The rest of you can't be that. He has another role for you. You should be happy in your role. And certainly that is part of this text. But the greater theological and crystal-centric understanding of this is God is pointing to some uh, a particular uh, teaching to help us understand that there's one way to come, and Aaron is representing that one way. And if you try to come any other way, you will surely die. And you notice they got it at the end at some level. And so as I thought about this, I kind of broke it down into three thoughts. Number one, in the presence of a righteous judge. I mean, you just can't help but think about the righteous judge when you study 16 and 17. It is amazing how God pours his judgment out on these people who are trying to come to God other than the way he told them to come. He's a righteous judge. And he's present there. The more I study this, the more I realize how amazing his presence must have been. It was a Shekinah glory. They knew he was there. The cloud comes over the tabernacle. We noticed last time twice that happened, and every time we said, "Uh uh-oh, here it goes. 
or you're not smart enough to know that every time this happens, there's problems, especially when you are living in defiant to what God has said. But we know his presence there, and that brings the righteous judge And he's always going to declare what is his way and what is God's way. He's going to give life where it's his way. And he's going to bring death where it's man's way. This is the way he operates. He knows what's best for us. As we drop into 17, 17 is really connected to, to 16. In fact, many of the commentators have said there probably shouldn't be a chapter break here. But 17 is really the conclusion of this rebellion That took place in 16. In many ways, it's the second part to this, maybe call it a divine vindication of Moses and Aaron's God-given authority. But I think it's more than that. It's, It's another reminder of God's instruction of really salvation. How is the Israelite going to be reconciled with God? This is what this pictures. God is going to show that there is only one high priest who can come into the presence of God. Nobody else comes. There is no other way. If you try to come any other way, it's death. And that's what they seem to understand at the end of the chapter. In chapter 16, we saw the rejection in a way by strange fire, right? There they're told to bring their their incense-bearing lanterns, kind of a, a metal piece of metal that hoiled incense coals and incense in them with a, probably a rope handle and stand before God and, and he was showing what was sweet to him, what aroma was sweet to him and what was not remember they wanted the position of Moses and Aaron and God was going to show them a difference and so they really came with a strange fire, they were doing something they should not have done God only had one who came into his presence with that aroma Their offerings of incense was not accepted. You remember that. God did not accept it. Because of it, he said, you can't come to me that way. I I, I reject that. And, of course, there's death there. And it's interesting. I was thinking about this today. I thought, you know, that's exactly what happened in just outside the garden with Cain and Abel. Somewhere, that gospel really got clearly taught to Abel that he knew to bring a lamb, a firstling of the flock to bring the blood of that lamb and come before God. Somewhere along the line, Cain knew that, and we know that by his reaction because he's mad because he only wants to come his way. And you kind of see the same thing. You've got Korah, uh, some of the the leaders of the firstborn of Reuben. You have these other 250 leaders. They all want to come their way. They all want their own authority and come their way to God. And God says, no, they all die. God accepts Aaron. The same is true. He accepted Abel and did not accept Cain's. This whole thing turned out very negative for Korah and his family and these tribe of Reuben and the firstborn and the 250 men. And though the judgment occurred in 16, it was very powerful and very swift. We see God react if you were here last week. Uh, what an amazing passage that was. But God desires to make a lasting statement. And that's what I think he's doing in this this particular chapter. He is making a lasting statement of what pleases him and how you come to me. You know, people sometimes get frustrated with us a little bit because they say we're so narrow-minded. You think we're (laughs) narrow-minded? God is extremely narrow. (laughs) You come this way or you die. That's it. 
And so as a Christian, Bible-believing, teaching church, we are often uh, have people upset with us because we don't think there's many doors to God. Jesus said, I am the door. Singular. <laughs> I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me no other way. And so over and over we see that same teaching, that New Testament teaching, that teaching of Christ alone taught as these things point forward in the Old Testament. So the divine will of God was to publicly judge those who rebelled and unmistakably put the seal on, the, on Aaron, who is the high priest who can come into his presence. Now, in the subsequent chapters, uh, as we go forward in this, you'll see rebellion again. And it's quite, it's hard to get your mind around it, you know. After you see some of this stuff in 16, you guys are really going to do this again? And I know many come up to me after the sermons and they say, Scott, I just can't believe they did it again. And yet that's, that's the nature of depravity. That's what depravity does. Depravity is blind to the things of God. And people can be swallowed up by the ground and you go, I still don't get it. It's one of the reasons I'm, I, I am fairly careful the way I witness and talk to sinners that have not been saved. And I think we have to be very careful here. Many times I've told people, be careful. They don't have what you have. Well, what's that? The Spirit of God. <laughs> the Spirit of God, we read a text that, um, you know, somebody could read Numbers chapter 17, they'll go, I have no idea what that means. What's going on there? Why does this guy get a, uh, an almond rod? <laughs> they have no idea what this is all about, Right? And, and, and we, the world does what it does because it's devoid of the Spirit of God. And yet we know God gives them over to things. Romans 1.20 helps us a little bit. So for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, right? We see a powerful God. We see a sun that rises out of the east every morning. We, we see Him give rain and sun on the godly and the wicked. To, he, he sustains life. Um, this earth just moves just a little bit. We either freeze to death or burn up, one of the two. We see the graciousness of God all the time. His divine power, his eternal power and divine nature is clearly seen. And it's been understood from what has been made. So worth without, the man is without excuse, verse 20 says. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him. See, I think that's what the Spirit of God does. One of the things He does in our life is He causes us to honor God. We, we, wouldn't, we would never mess with God's teaching on marriage because it dishonors Him. It's a mark of the Spirit in us. The Spirit of God says, hey, this is how God set up marriage. This is how God set up gender. This is how God set up how we raise our young and teach them boys and girls and all that kind of stuff because that's what God did. See, the Spirit of God teaches us those things from His Word. Remember, Jesus said, He'll come, the Comforter will come, and He'll take what is mine and He'll give it to you. Praise God, He did that. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you are dead and headed for hell. And, and, and this doesn't make a lot of sense. So even though they knew God, they, they know there's a God out there, they don't honor Him as God or give thanks. And I think in really what, 
really what that amounts to is they not they're not they do not care about God's ways. They don't want to come God's ways, and they don't want to acknowledge God's way. And so we want our way. So love is love and all the things that they go on with, right? In the end, they are just foolish, and their heart is darkened, the Bible says. In fact, they think they're wise, but they become fools, verse 22 says. So depravity robs people of truth. And you can't help but study this, and you go, they're going to do this again. And he's going to send a bunch of snakes. I mean, that's it for me. I- I'm done. I'm, 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 I'm never going <laughs> to, well, you just send snakes to bite me. You think you're going to learn the lesson, but you go, why don't they? It's depravity. When you don't come to God by faith alone, you remain in your sin, in your darkness, in your blindness, in your depravity, and God does not make sense to you. And your way, your way becomes so supreme that you can't see the obvious. We should every day praise God that he saved us and he gave us his spirit. Every day, God, I thank you you saved me. I I try to wake up in the mornings and rehearse that. Lord, I praise you that you saved me. There was no other way if you didn't do it. Thank you for your spirit that guides me into truth. For those that wandered in the wilderness, some of them did come to God by faith alone. Some of them did accept this and they saw what was right and they saw God's man that he was choosing and they agreed to that. And then others didn't. And so here's a lesson and a reminder for us that again and again that God is right. God is God, right? And we joyfully align our affairs up under him so we don't mess with the gospel. We don't mess with the way to come to God through Christ alone. The minute you do that, you have deceived. It's the greatest deception there is. And, and, and here's what they do that's really tricky, right? It's Christ plus a few things. Walk this, bend this, do this, give that. Jesus plus this, then you get justified some way. That's a lie of the pit of the hell. Look at, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. I just want to remind you of this verse. This is a verse I think of very often. And anyone who teaches the Bible, anyone who loves the Bible, maybe you're not called to the ministry. But you've got to love this verse. Second Timothy chapter 4, excuse me, verse 1 and 2. I mean, we're in the last penned words of the Apostle Paul. He he certainly wrote some other letters, but this is the last inspired words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to his young protege that is taking the mantle and going to press on. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. You know, here's the reason I thought about this. Here's the nation of Israel. They're standing in the presence of God, Right? He's there. Their rods are getting put into his presence. Right before the testimony, they're brought right in front of God. He's always been the judge of the living and the dead. You're going to actually see the judge because the incarnate Christ is going to represent the Godhead, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. That's going to take place. He always does this. 
Those who don't come my way, they're judged. They are the goats. They are the dead. The ones who come only through my son, they are the living ones. They are my sheep. They are the sheep of my pasture. They are my people. That's what he does. And, and, and it's all in the presence of God. And here the nation of Israel is in the presence of God. These rods are coming in. And God there is making a judgment on them. These are dead. This is alive. These will get you death. This will bring you to me. You can see that all through this text. Notice this verse, though, back to my text. By the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. See, it's, it's our Lord and Savior who's going to judge the living and the dead that places the fear of God into me to preach his word, not mine. And that's why we hide God's word in our hearts. We don't sin against him. We want to, and when we speak, we want to know God's word. We may not get it just perfect, but, but we should know it well enough to recite it to somebody, to share God's word with somebody, because it comes down to the judge of the living and dead. This is what the judge of the living and the dead says. You can only get to heaven through Jesus Christ alone. We just sang that song, I came empty-handed. I love that term. It's been passed down through several hymns through the years. I remember a pastor telling his testimony. He grew up on a river in the south somewhere, and as boys, they would go swimming. I don't know if it was Mississippi or the Ohio or somewhere like that. And he said, we did it every day of the week, you know, during the summer. But one day I jumped off of a log, and I inhaled a bunch of water. And I, he said, I was a good swimmer. But I, I took in water, and I could not get to the top. And he said, I, I knew I was dying. This was it. He goes, I'm 11 years old. I think that was his age. He goes, I know I'm going to die. I cannot, I cannot get my mouth to break the surface. I'm, my water has filled my lungs. I, I, and, 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 you know, it's, those rivers are not super crystal clear, right? And he said, all I could do was just, I could get my hand through the surface. As I was starting to go unconscious. He said, about that moment, someone grabbed my hand. He said, it was one of my friends. He just happened to see me. I'll never forget that testimony. That's, that's salvation. All I got is an empty hand, God. There ain't nothing in it. That's, that's salvation. And see, this is what we preach, because there is a God of the living and the dead. There is one who is going to judge the living and the dead, and so we stick to the text. We teach the truth. This is, this is what God blesses, and when we don't, he does not bless that. And I think that's so well illustrated in our text. Go back to Numbers chapter 17 with me and move to my second thought. The sign of the will of God and the rod of his authority well, notice in verse 10, this word sign comes up. But the Lord said to Moses, put, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. What an interesting term. A sign against the rebels. Signs are often for the unbelieving, right? In fact, we learned that as we went through Corinthians, uh, particularly 14. Signs are for the unbelieving. So believers who are crying out, oh, I want to sign, I need to speak at this tongue, I need to do this and do that, they've mistaken what signs are for. And you'll notice in this passage, signs are for the rebels. 
No, not for the people who come by faith alone. Jesus, in fact, said in John 4, 48, Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. So you don't come to God through some kind of signs and wonders. You come to God through faith alone in Christ. That is it. By his grace, through faith, that he even gives you the faith to believe. So you can repent. It's a complete work of God. John later writes in chapter 12, verse 37, but though he performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So signs often are used for the unbelieving. Here in our text, the sign was very fairly simple. Look at verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each of their father's households, 12 rods from all the leaders according to their father's household. You shall write each name on his rod. So the leaders of each tribe were to bring this personal rod and they were to give it to Moses, and the name was to be written on it. It was placed in the tabernacle before the presence of God, the testimony. Verse 4 there. Each man's name would be on that rod. So you have these 12 tribes of Israel, and one of them in verse 3 is Aaron's name, and clarified that he's from the tribe of Levi, the priesthood. That's his rod. God wants it clarified. It's one way to come to me. God's about to put on a display of <laughs> unmistakable sign, right? If you want a sign, let me show you an unmistakable sign. His rod was God's sovereign choice here. The rods weren't just a stick. Uh, certainly they had been used for walking. Remember, they've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. We don't quite know when this takes place, but they've been out there for at least half of it, maybe. We don't know. But they were also for identification. Rods were often given to men, or men had them that were identified as leaders in some way. Maybe one of the most grotesque places we see a rod and identified of a man is in Genesis 38 with the rod of, Tam- uh, rod of Judah, who he leaves with Tamar, who is his daughter-in-law, who dresses herself up like a prostitute, who he lies with her. Oh, man, we remember that. If you want to go back and listen to that one, you can. That was a fun one to teach on. But what does he do? He leaves his rod with her. Later, that rod is brought out, as you study the text, and says, who rod is this? It was clearly Judah's rod. And everybody knew it was Judah's rod. See, rods were given, and and these men would probably whittle them and maybe decorate them. Some of them were known to have things uh, hang off of them, and doubtlessly they picked them up in the desert somewhere. But one thing, and here's what's key, is that each of these pieces of wood was dead. That's what you got to get from this text. These rods are all dead. They are lifeless. There's nothing growing on them. They are producing no fruit. They are dead. And so with all of these dead rods gathered up, Moses takes these 12 rods and he brings them into the presence of the Lord. You'll notice that in verse 4. Verse 5, we see God doing the choosing, don't we? You can hoop and holler and you can vote for your rod. (laughs) You could have a bracket. Try to see if your rod makes it to the championship. Japan beat USA last night in World Baseball. 
I know you guys were thinking about tournament, but. But it's God who chooses, and that's such an important lesson here. And notice at the latter part of verse 5 there, there's this clear grumbling against God, though it's directed to Moses. God knows it's against him. And so he says, uses this word, lessen the grumbling. That's an interesting Hebrew word. The Hebrew word means to drain something off. So God knows the hearts of this rebellious people. He knows how many of them are still fallen into rebellion. And even though he has showed them his power to swallow people up, there is still a rebellious sect among them, and he is going to drain them off. And he's trying to be gracious, right? He's trying to show them, look, I'm going to do something that nobody else can do to help you quit being rebellious and help you quit showing your rebellion through your grumbling. Now, just a real quick note there, brothers and sisters. Our grumbling is always connected to rebellion. Anybody grumble today? There's a rebellious nature to us at times, isn't there? God wants that drained off. Notice in verse 6 and 7, God took the identifications of all of the greatest men of Israel. Let's, Let's take the identification, this rod from the greatest men, put forth your best guy, and put that in my presence. In the morning, this beautiful sign, this miraculous sign was clearly evident. Look at verse 8. Now the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimonies, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Rods are examined. (laughs) Not probably hard to see. And Aaron's rod was found to be not only budding and blossoming, but now yielding fruit while the other rods remained barren and dead. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty clear, isn't it? You want to come through Benjamin, you die. You want to come through Judah, the line of Christ at this point, you die. You're only going to come through Aaron, the high priest. That's where life is. And we see God demonstrating this. It's clear and simple. God's indicating his clear choice of Aaron rather than the others. And Aaron was singled out and shown to be different and divinely appointed from others. Again, a clear indication of God's will for his people in verse 9. You see that. I I think I might have said this Sunday. I can't remember when I said this last before Jesus came, the, the, uh, Josephus accounts that there was at least a hundred who rode into Jerusalem between the intertestamental periods claiming to be the Messiah. And all of them died. <laughs> None of them were resurrected from the dead. None of them beat sin, Satan, de- and death. There was only one. I, I, I found this really interesting. I was chasing this rod down just a little bit and thinking through it. And I never had caught this before. Maybe some of you have. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, the Bible says this, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah saying this, what do you see, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah says, I see a rod of an almond tree. For I am watching over my word to perform it, God says. That is interesting. I had never put that together until I was studying this. I thought, wow, Jeremiah... God says, what do you see? I see a rod of an almond tree. Life. 
Now, it, you guys don't have a lot of almonds out here. You know, from California, the whole Central Valley is full of almonds. In fact, this time of year, it's one of the most beautiful drives because um, depending on the variety of almonds, there's tons of pink and white flowers all the way down through the valley for hundreds of miles in California. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, but in the winter, they just look really dead. You can drive by the same stretch, <laughs> and there's just gazillions of almond trees. Uh, and, and they just look dead. They're just sticks out there. Uh, they don't look like they have anything. And then all of a sudden, there is a bud and a blossom, and then fruit comes, and the trees are just laden with almonds. And so I think all of this is that I look at this that all of this is pointing to something greater because we know that Aaron has no ability to save anybody. He can't save himself. So this isn't about Aaron being a savior. It has to be about somebody greater, a greater high priest. And of course, that's what the book of Hebrews is about. And so not only does Aaron's rod get chosen by God, but Aaron's rod was made to show that it can give life. So now we know this isn't about Aaron. Aaron can't give life. So this is pointing to something greater. There is a way to come to God, way to be reconciled, way to come to the tabernacle, way to come to the, to the altar, way to bring blood in before the presence of God, and it comes through the high priest. So God uses a dead rod in this case to show a symbol of power and authority and to show how to come. And God loves using rods. He's done this all the time. In fact, he tells parents, use the rod, save their soul from hell, right? You should remember that. Don't do it in public anymore. The rod reminds children that God hates sin. Parents, your heart has to be right with God when you use the rod. But rod is always a symbol of authority. He gave one to Moses. He says, when you get in front of Pharaoh, take that rod in your hand, throw it on the ground. What does it become? Yeah, why? I don't know, but yeah, we do know. You go back and look at that. Picks it up, becomes a rod again. He takes that same rod and he stretches it out over the Red Sea and it splits open wide and becomes dry. God uses this rod all the time. He strikes a rock and water flows from it. And he quenches, God quenches the thirst of millions of people through a rock using this rod Moses will see here shortly in a couple of chapters that he misuses that rod. He tries to take the authority away from God. He tries to take the rod into his own hand. It does not belong to him, and it cost him the promised land because it was redirecting how to come to God and who had the authority and who didn't. See, God always judges that. That's why we, we, we get nervous with our Catholic friends and some of our other friends that venture into works-based relationships. If you think that you're gaining God because you believe that Jesus died under Christ and you do this, this, and this to gain justification, it's extremely dangerous. So the Catholic Church has taken the authority, so they think, and they are the authority. Not the Word of God, not even Christ. They have become the authority. Now, let me say this real quickly. We love evangelizing Catholics. They believe in God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. They believe in those things. And so we see a lot of Catholics. And if I asked you how many are Catholics here are born and raised and got saved, there's probably quite a few in here. And praise God for that. But that's just an example. But here we see that 
God was concerned to make sure that the one way through the priesthood was going to be the clear and only way. So Aaron and only Aaron was given the high priest position and, and the only one who could bring the blood into the presence of the Lord, that had to be Aaron. So he's making this one way statement here. But now God has taken the rod of Aaron and given it something to prove this. He took a dead rod and gave it life. And not just life. You've got to think about this. But fruitful life. That's fascinating. I always said God didn't save us just to, just to let us hold down some dirt. God saved us for us to be fruitful for his glory. And when we come through Christ alone and we really grasp that, we really believe that, he will produce fruit in your life. He will do this. So Aaron's ministry before the Lord would, would be a living thing, right? He's bringing, he, in a sense, he brings the people, their sacrifices and their offerings before a living God to, to grant life. It's a source of life. It's a source of blessing that comes through God alone. So in chapter 16, it was Aaron who stood in the gap between death and life. You remember that, verse 46 through 47. He runs and he stands between the plague, between the living and the dead. And there life is restored and stopped. Death is stopped and life is, is now saved because Aaron runs and does that. So Aaron's rod shows that there's life in it. If you come through Aaron, through his mediation for you, there is life. So the testimony and the demonstration by God shows infallible, indisputably chooses how you come into the presence of God. And when you come His way, there is fruitfulness, there's blessing. But at the same time, His way should not be challenged. And I think that's the lesson here. It's an amazing lesson. It's impressive, right? Aaron in and of himself, there's nothing good in an Aaron of himself. He was by no means perfect. We'll see his faults. We've already seen his faults. He, he was after Moses' authority at one time, him and his sister, and she is a, a leper. And, and we certainly know Moses isn't, isn't infallible either. But their lives had the seal of God upon them, and they were fruitful by God's sovereign purposes. So they're these types. So it, this is... Uh, so this is the sign God meant for the nation of Israel to see. And this is his sign of demonstration that Aaron was God's man of choosing. And it was meant to silence everyone else and all the grumbling and the rebellious hearts to say, come my way or don't come. Third thought here. The under shepherds and the chief shepherds. The test is still the same today because the grace, by the grace of God, he still takes his chosen and called servants and he uses these under-shepherds to bear fruit within the flock, right? We, we see that happen. He raises up men. He's always done this for his people. He's brought these men to, to care for his flock and to bear fruit. So certainly this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He takes the light of Christ. As I love about the, words, the work of the Spirit, as I walk up those steps, often you see me mumbling. I'm just, I'm not mumbling for because I'm old. Um, I'm often asking the Lord, I'm asking the Spirit of God to help me in, in doing this. Because I believe the Spirit of God comes in and shines through cracked pots. So when you hear the preached Word of God, you hear the Word of God taught, and there's this 
infallible man standing here preaching the infallible truths. That is the work of the Holy Spirit shining through a cracked spot. A cracked spot. Pot. You also heard me say this, and other people have said this, that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. That's one of my favorite. Many times in my cowboy days as I was preparing for the ministry, you know, you always have a stick in your hand and you're snapping your horse or hitting something with it. And I look at that thing and go, Lord, you just draw straight lines. Because fallible people, you and I, can give dead exact truth how to get to God. And you don't have to have a seminary experience, uh, uh, education. All you have to do is say, here's how God saves. There's no other way. You must come through Jesus Christ alone. It is by Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and it's by faith alone, and we add nothing to his finished work, and you don't have to have seminary education to tell people that. That's a crooked stick drawing straight lines. And that's what I mean by that. And so when I think about Aaron, and that's why I'm talking about his under-shepherds here and their chief shepherd, you know, you look at, I keep talking about Aaron. He's the, he's the guy, he's the guy, he's the guy. He's the type because he's not the guy. Christ is the guy, and it's all pointing towards him. So God always raises up under-shepherds for his people. They lead his lambs to the chief shepherd. That's what we do. And God's earthly shepherds are very fallible. They need the same saving grace. They need the blood of the lamb. But notice that Aaron's rod was not, only had fresh almonds on it. Now, this is what I want you to get. Not only does Aaron's rod have the fresh almonds on it here, but it has buds and it has blossoms and it's promise of life to come. I always loved spring out in the west because the snow would finally melt off. There we have a lot of apple trees in the high country and um, some of the cherry trees and th- different things like that. It's just cold and everything looks dead in the winter out there when you, and you're in the high country. And then all of a sudden there's that one blossom. There's some sprouts of grass breaking through uh, the once frozen ground. And, and it's a promise of life. And so as I thought about Aaron's rod, as I worked on this, I thought, yeah, the almonds are pretty special. It has fresh, ripe almonds on there. And and certainly, that has to, that, that's wonderful. That's pointing to the fact that God says this is the way you're going to come through Aaron. But there's more here. There's these buds and there's these blossoms. And they're promising of more life. More almonds are going to come when you see a bud and, and a blossom. That means that there's going to be some kind of harvest from that. And we understand this to point to the finished work of Jesus Christ. The one who gives life eternally. And so new life through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ can't be missed in this scene. The fruit could represent Aaron's priesthood. The blossoms could be pointing to his sons that would take succession after him and be the high priest that would come in. And we see this all the way to Jesus' day because you have Caiaphas and Annas and the sons and, and one's a retired high priest and the other one is the high priest of the time. And so it's going down. And so though they they certainly were not very fruitful in their ministry. Maybe that's what that's pointing to. But I, but, I, but I think what I would say here is that the bud is pointing to the promise of life to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the rod is God's promise of eternal life. It's coming through the never 
the never-ending one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Aaron's going to die. He's going to be a high priest that they're going to bury, right? We actually will see that. But there's one who's coming who's going to beat sin, Satan, and death. He's going to beat death. He's going to come out of the grave. He's going to be the one who offers himself as the final lamb. He's going to bring his own blood into the presence of God. He's going to come into a tabernacle not made by hands of men. He's going to come into the throne room of God. And there he's going to offer his own blood. And God is going to be appeased. And he is going to give life to all who believe in him. And so, yes, right there, Aaron was the way. He is the almond he is the fruit right at that point that was the way to be reconciled but he was pointing to something that was coming there's a bud that's going to show that there's life coming and that has to point towards the lord jesus christ hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 and 12 but when christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation and not with not through the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having attained eternal redemption. And so the lifeless body of Jesus Christ goes into the tomb, the, and, and this life-giving body of Christ comes out of the tomb. And that scene, when we're going to see this as we get it, work our way into Good Friday and the resurrection and all that. They take his body, this lifeless body, off the cross. He died. No matter what you're going to hear, you're going to see something where people say, well, you know, he really wasn't dead. He was, you can go in this comatose state. And He's dead because the wages of sin is what? Death. So he died. Josephus, Joseph of Arimathea, take his body down, women following from a distance. And they lie that lifeless body in the grave. He goes into the tomb lifeless. He comes out of the tomb life-giving. It's amazing. So I think Aaron is that, that almond. His sons may be the blossoms, but the Christ is that bud. It's the promise of life to come. He is a life-giver. That's what he does. Right before his death, Jesus said, Speaking in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 7, 17, verses 1 and 2, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given, he may give eternal life. That's what he does. John picks up on this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. He says, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and life is in his Son. So I looked at that bud on the rod. I just sat there and just meditated. That's life. It was a long ways off. <laughs> a little more winter would come, right? A little more difficult come. Hard to see that there would be ripe fruit, useful things just out of a little teeny bud that, that hasn't even flowered yet. But that's telling us there was life coming. And that's what the Old Testament's about. And when you study the Old Testament, that it's all pointing towards a life in Christ that's coming, you, the Old Testament starts to come alive. I was on the phone with my son uh, just yesterday. He's in Japan, and, and we, he's reading through the Bible, and, and he's in Leviticus. And I said, son, don't quit, and if you get overwhelmed, go on the website and listen to some sermons. But son, don't forget, when it seems lifeless in that book, it's all pointing towards Jesus. And we just had this great conversation about every lamb, every grain offering, everything that records in there is all pointing to. They're, they're dim. They're, they're not as clear as we'll see in Jesus Christ when you get into the Gospels. But, but, but they're all pointing to something greater. 
He said, Dad, thanks. It's so helpful because you can kind of get lost in all the sacrifices and all the offerings and all the laws and all that. And I said, it's all pointing towards Jesus Christ. Remember, the law is a shadow of good things to come. I quoted him that verse. But here, there's also Aaron's position. God had to establish a position of how to get to God. And I think that's what he does today. We establish his position that you only get to me through Jesus Christ. And so there will always be people who will not bow to the authority of Christ. There's always going to be people who are seeking an alternative way. There will always be people who are trying to create some God, a designer God that meets their fallen and very fallible views of, of life and eternal life. There's always going to be those. But in this text, it teaches us that God vindicates his one way to come to him. In the Old Testament, it's Aaron. And he shows it by this new life to a dead rod. And so he vindicates his son by raising him from the dead and producing the fruit of eternal life in every one of us who believe. We are now the fruit of God's great work. And look, the apostles just went crazy with the teaching of the resurrection. And we're working our way there. I'm gonna, one more lesson. Pray for me. I can get through all of the lost son. It's going to be a fast one through this this Sunday because I'm going to start preaching on the resurrection in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians on Palm Sunday and on Easter. But wow, is it just throughout the scriptures. Everywhere we turn, it starts with the first sermon. Men of Israel, Peter says, chapter 2, verse 22, listen to the words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow, what a statement. Who killed Christ? Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God delivered him over. Who's, who's guilty of it? You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. Put him to death. But God raised him up again. Every sermon, the resurrection is produced within their message. It is the climactic uh, instruction to the gospel. Because he beats sin, he beats Satan, and he beats death. And now there is life in him. The Bible says, Peter, preaching this, he says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Listen to this. Since it was impossible for him, Jesus, to be held by its power. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15, because he raised him, he'll raise us. Praise the Lord. Over and over, we see throughout the Bible, the, the apostles turn to the resurrection. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 who declared the Son of God with the power of the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The power of the resurrection over the dead. That's our Lord. So, as you look at this story, there's just a real sense of Aaron's rod is pointing to something so much greater. I found so much joy in that. This nation has fallen into sin. They've wandered around the wilderness. God's been purging out those who have no faith in him. In verse 5, this miracle, this budding rod is meant to lessen the grumbling, give them hope there's a way to God. And most likely it did for a little while, but only for a short time. The law, the rod, we're all pointing to something greater. But look at the last couple of verses here. We'll close with this. Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses, not to God, 
spoke to Moses saying, Behold, we perish. We are dying. We are all dying. Everyone who comes near, come near, comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? Very challenging couple of verses. Are they saying this because they now understand that there's only one way to come, and if you don't come that way, you're going to die? Are they revealing their own hearts? Their jealousy of Aaron's role? That they want to come their own way? It's difficult to understand. They do something very similar in Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, after the giving of the Ten Commandments. They tell Moses, look, speak to us yourself. We'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. They're afraid of the presence of God. One thought is they didn't trust in the mediator. They kept challenging the mediator. They kept challenging the one way to the presence of God. And any time you do that, any time your faith is not in Christ alone, you will feel death knocking at your door. Because anything other than Christ alone is death alone. That's what you're going to get. Life is in Christ. And I think there should be a fear of God if you try to come over the fence. That's why I started with John 10. The thief tries to come over. They don't come through the door. They try to come over. Christ plus something. And so you should be afraid if you are trying to come to God some other way. If you're, you're trying to mix justification through Christ's work and your own works, you should be afraid. See, there's pride. There's lack of repentance. There's lack of faith. There's sin. There's blindness here. Blindness to grace. Most people don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible. I'll just tell you that, right? Most people really don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible. And you go, well, yeah, we're in some bad times. Read Genesis 6. Someone was just telling me this today or yesterday. We were just talking, man, things are worse than they've ever been. Mm. (laughs) Genesis 6. There's only one righteous guy left on the earth. I mean, we find it all the way through the Scriptures. We find it in history, right? It isn't hard to go back to world world wars and go, wow. Last phrase is quite eye-opening. Are we to perish completely? Well, the answer is yes. You will perish completely without coming God's way. That's the answer. But the one who comes by faith alone, and that's all God's asking of them. You put faith in the way I have told you to come. I've given you laws. I've written them over, over and over and over and over. My son asked me, he goes, Dad, he just kind of repeats it a lot. I go, yeah, but <laughs> it's because we don't get it. I said, how many times have you heard your dad preach through the years? And how many times have we shared the gospel together and things like that? He goes, yeah, that makes sense, Dad. It's repeated because we're hard-hearted. But when you come by faith, and in the Old Testament here, it was come through Aaron, come through the blood of the Lamb, come through this mediator who will come and atone for your sins and bring them into my presence, and you will not have to fear death. But if you want to come any other way, you better be afraid because I'll swallow you up alive. But not the Christian. And I end with these great verses that we'll look at here in the next couple weeks. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and following. Death is swallowed up in victory.
Our dear sister Joe passed away last night. Death was swallowed up. She passed from death to life. There, there, was, there was no segment of time in between that. She was absent from her body. She was present with the Lord. She immediately left this world and she went into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means that death was swallowed up in the victory. It has no power over us. Quoting the Old Testament, Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of the sin is the law. The law exposes the power of sin. It shows that it brings death. The law was death, really. When you study the law in the New Testament, it's, it's always connected to death. When you study the role of the Spirit in truth, it's always connected with life. And then he ends this way, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Joe's with the Lord. All here that believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the only way, the truth, and the life to the Father. You can't get him to him any other way. Death will be swallowed up. It will have no power over you. Many, many of us may die if the Lord doesn't return. We may die. But you'll pass from this life right into the presence of the Lord. Come his way, or you're not coming at all. Father, thank you for... This reminder, Numbers chapter 17 is a shorter passage, but a very powerful one. There's life when we come your way. There's only dead, barren, lifeless eternity if we come some other way. We pray, Lord, we will not be like the thieves who try to climb in versus coming through the door. We will come through the door. The Lord Jesus Christ is the door. He's the shepherd. He's the door. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the bread. He's the living water. He's all that we need, everything we need to come to you, Father, and you've provided that. And Lord, when we come through you, you bear fruit in us. Us poor, wretched, dead sinners now are alive and bearing fruit for your glory living lives that are actually pleasing to you, Lord, versus ones that are not. All that's a product of this one-way salvation. So, we, Lord, we ask that you would help us come to you that one way and live through that one way. Live in Christ alone. Live in his word alone. Live by faith alone, through grace alone. May those truths of our salvation be lived out in our daily salvation, our daily life. Because in you, we have new life. We don't fear death. And we praise you for that. Lord, thank you for such an attentive group tonight, Lord. I pray you'd bless them. Give them strength. Give us strength to walk with you and live with you. I pray sweet rest for this group tonight. And may we serve you tomorrow if you give us life for another day and praise you and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.